0: Morning. 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 Where uh, the church is doing a fundraiser, where we're trying to help Lifeline Pregnancy. They're uh, they're a ministry that helps uh, women uh, who have, uh, are pregnant or have given birth, and uh, they help them uh, with some physical things that they might need, but they also help them with giving them the gospel and with giving them counseling and tips and and um, uh, how to live a biblical life and how to help their, their children. And uh, they're a great ministry, and what we're doing as a fundraiser is the, the bottles that are out there, uh, you can take one, uh, fill it up with uh, coins, with whatever you'd like, and uh, bring it back on Father's Day, and all those funds will go to Lifeline Pregnancy to help help uh, Women in this area who are considering abortion or um, they've had a kid and and, um, they're just struggling and they they offer counseling to these ladies and it's a a great ministry. Uh, We're in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 7 through 10 today. Uh, If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the his, uh, riches and his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him uh, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times—that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth—in Him. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for Your Word. I pray now that, uh, as we look at this text, that we will we will praise You for this work that You have done. Father, as we see Your will uh, as it gets uh, revealed through. Paul writing to this church, that we will have a greater appreciation of the salvation that we have. Father, there might be some here that cannot praise you because they have never accepted Christ as their Savior, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and illumine them and and help them today to be the day of salvation. Father, for other of us, maybe we've gotten too distracted with with things of this world, maybe uh, we're worried about things, and I pray that we will cast all those things aside and, and praise you for this wonderful salvation that you have given us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. We see in this text a, a mention of God's will, uh, and it kind of describes God's will in these verses, and, and it's, an, it's an area that sometimes gets talked a lot about is God's will. How do you know God's will? I I went to a small Bible college in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and around the cafeteria table usually there was a lot of discussion about how do you know God's will? Uh, How can you determine God's will? And and there was uh, one thing that we would talk about is uh, how do you know if it's God's will or your will? God's will or your will? Uh, God's will versus your own will, your own desires. How do you know the difference? Uh, could it be that uh, God would, would, would want you to marry uh, an ugly man or an ugly woman? Could that be God's will? Well, no, it cannot be. You know, huh? I'm glad the, the parents of that creature love them, but um, I, I could never love that. It could not be God's will that I marry an ugly person. Uh, we, we talk about this. How do you know God's will versus your own will? And, and there's uh, some debate as we discuss that. And sometimes it was kind of interesting that we would see that uh, sometimes people would talk about God's will and it seemed to coincide magically with the things that they wanted to do, even things that they wanted to do that scripture said not to do. But it was interesting how Uh, it coincided because the wind blew just right and it moved their hair over and they knew that that was God indicating to them uh, what they were supposed to do. Uh, God's will versus your will. Another thing that uh, we would discuss is uh, the steps to know God's will. Uh, How do you determine God's will? What steps do you need to take to know God's will? And, And this kind of went into a couple different areas. One was, uh, uh, is there a se- sequence of activities you need to do to be able to determine God's will? Is there a, a certain steps that you need to do, almost like a-, a recipe that you follow, that if you're going to make bread, well, you need to uh, first activate the yeast with some warm water and sugar, let it sit 10 minutes, then add your flour, blah, 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 yada, yada. Is God's will something like that, where there's like these steps that you do, and if you do these steps then you can determine God's will for your life. Uh, I was talking with one person, and they said that when they are trying to determine God's will, uh, when they're looking to really know what God wants, they, they, they start to uh, really, really get close to God. And it, it was kind of an interesting thing, because it almost um, put a, a dichotomy between normal Christian living... Where you don't get really close to God, and then if you need to know God's will, then then you really get close to God. But if you don't need to know God's will right then, then you can kind of drift a little bit, you know, and not really pay attention until again you need to really, really know God's will. Then you got to pay close attention. And, and people have these lists. You need to uh, pray at a certain time, and and read so many passages of Scripture. Uh, you need to fast and. And you need to do this. And and they set up a list. And if you do this sequence of events, you'll be able to determine God's will. Uh, There was another idea as we uh, think about uh, steps to knowing God's will, uh, that God gives desires to your heart. God is the one that gives you certain desires. And these desires, as long as they do not... uh, violate loving God and loving your neighbor, then you can do them as you please. That God places desires in your heart, and as long as the desires do not violate loving God and loving your neighbor, then you're free to do them. (coughs) You're free to, uh, to do whatever you choose to do. Now, it was John Calvin who came up with this idea of do whatever your heart pleases as long as you're loving God and loving your neighbor. And, of course, it was John Calvin that said it. And uh, even though it made a lot of sense, we were like, but it's John Calvin. You know, how, how could we possibly uh, listen to him? And so we kind of threw it to the side and, and not wanted to really engage with that. But how do you know God's will? How can a person know? Well, this text will tell us a little bit about God's will. Uh Fred, this is water from today. Thank you. <clears throat> the, um, for some reason, I've got this itch, and I, I made it through last sermon. I think we'll, we'll make it through this one. Uh, in the text that we've been looking at, Paul writes to a group of believers who are first-generation believers. In other words, These aren't individuals who, their great-grandfather, their grandfather, their father, they've all gone to church. It's not like that. These are first-generation Christians that Paul is writing to them. And and they they don't have a culture of churchness. He writes them this lengthy praise of God's work. And in verses 3 to 6, God the Father is the subject of this work. And Paul identifies God's work in, in two different areas. One in that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The choosing. Uh, God did this before the foundation of the, of the world. And what's very interesting is many times people debate the choosing and the predestinating that we see in verse 5. Uh, many want to debate what does that mean? But according to what Paul said, These two activities have already happened before the foundation of the world. So it really doesn't matter how I decide to interpret it or how you decide to. This is something God has already done, and we're now playing it out. But he has chosen us in love. Now, the word love, I'm sure you've heard a a lot of different studies on the word agape, that aspect of love, And, and usually there's an aspect of sacrificial love that goes with that word agape. The Greek word, I copy. Uh, because it's used in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that uh, he loved, and that love has a sacrificial aspect to it. But also in this word, it, while it does have the sacrificial aspect, there's also a part of this word that has a, a free choice to love that there's not anything tying the person to demand love to another person, but rather it's the free choice of love. There's no legal demand for this type of love. Uh, For example, there's a certain legal demand on parents loving their kids. If you don't love your kid, uh, police can be called, and um, and they can be taken away, and you can be arrested, right? There's a legal demand that you at least pretend that you love your kids. At least let the neighbors think that you love the kids, right? Because if not, there's going to be consequences. There, there's a covenantal type love. When uh, uh, two people are getting married, and they're standing there in front of the Lord, and, and uh, in front of the, the pastor, and in front of the church, and they're they're making a covenantal love with each other. And they're saying that I will do this. They're making a a covenant between the two to love. But this word here... It has no covenantal obligation. There's no no legal demand that says, you must love me. It's a free choice to love. And God has, in his freedom, chosen to choose and and to love. He he has done this. Now, this is a, a fantastic thing to think of because we really have nothing that would say, you should love me because we have been rebellious. Now this loving has created, um, he has decided to predestinate us in adopting us as sons. Now last week we did not go into any of the legal ramifications for how this could have happened. How is it that that God being a holy God could adopt a sinful person? How could a holy God bring into his family someone who is not holy? We, We didn't go into that. And the reason we didn't go into that is because it's going to get described later on. And so I don't really want to get into that aspect of it. I just want to look at some implications of the fact that we have been adopted. The first is that now, uh, that before being adopted, uh, we did not belong to God. Before that adoption process, it, it, it implied that we belonged to somebody else. Now, uh, This is something that you see with a a child that gets adopted. They are born, he or she is born to a certain set of parents, but because of some circumstances then another group of parents adopt that person. Before they belonged to this person, now they belong to this other group of people. And, And that is a legal transaction, which means it didn't have to happen, could have left How things were, and said, "You're over there. I'm over here. You know, have a good day." But God decided to adopt and and make us to belong to Him, to be into that family. Also, uh, being adopted frees the adoptee from the previous relationship, and, and it brings a new relationship. Now, now this is really fascinating. If a person is adopted. The former parents can say, you need to go to sleep by 7.30, and you need to do this, and you need to do that. And uh, the the person that's adopted, the kid that's adopted, says, I I don't need to listen to you because that relationship is no longer valid. I I listen to my parents, and my parents say, I get to go to bed at 9.30. I can stay up 30 minutes later. And my parents said, I could watch this. You don't have to listen to the ones who were before because there is no uh, legal demand on that. They belong to somebody else. And in this, it's a very important part because many times a believer who has been adopted continues to listen to the wrong voices. Jesus makes this uh, statement that his sheep hear his voice. But many times... (laughs) Uh, we ignore the Good Shepherd's voice and we start listening to other voices. Now, as we think about this, what we're going to be looking at today is that we need to praise God because Christ redeemed us and freed us at an immeasurable cost. We need to praise God because Christ redeemed us and freed us at an immeasurable cost. We we cannot calculate the cost that it uh, had on God for this redemption. And our first point that we'll look at is that Christ redeemed us through his death. Christ redeemed us through his death. And we see that in verse 7. Now, there's something very interesting that's happening that we've seen from verses 3 through 6. And that is that um, if you look at verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who uh, has blessed us. That's a past tense activity has blessed us Uh, with every spiritual blessing, heavenly places, and he uh, chose us, he chose, that's past tense, uh, in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined, that's again past tense. But then we get to verse 7, and we see something happen, A, a change that happens, a radical change that happens as we look at that verb. It moves from past tense to present tense. So this is no longer something that happened in the past, but it's something that's happening now. It says, in him we have redemption. We have it. We possess it. We have it in our hands. It is ours. We have this. Paul's addressing the believers, and he tells them that they have something. And that something that they have is redemption. Redemption means uh, uh, buying back a, a slave or uh, making a payment to free somebody. It's going and buying a slave or making a payment to free somebody. Now, this sounds totally weird to us uh, because I don't think none of us have ever gone to a slave market and picked out a slave and said, I, I want that one and we purchased that person and brought him to our house. I don't, think, I don't think anyone would raise their hand if they have done that, kind of keep their hands down. Uh, but no, no one's done that. So that, that seems kind of strange to us. But the idea of ransom, uh, of paying a ransom, your, your brother has, has gone into a huge debt, and you go and you pay so that he can be released. It's the idea of buying somebody to possess them or to release them through a payment. Now, when we look at that word and we see that uh, we, have, uh, we have redemption, uh, we have to ask ourselves a series of, of questions. And, and the questions, uh, the first question is, uh, who, who was bought? Who was bought? Now, the safest answer for that question is to say, we, right? It, it, the, the verb is the first plural, we have redemption, we have this. But that kind of doesn't really answer our question a little bit because here we stand at a time gap, there, there's a huge gap between where Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus and where we're standing here, and it's all fine and dandy that we're, Paul and the Ephesians are, have this redemption, but what about us, are we included in this redemption? Is there any benefit for us? So we have to try to understand a little bit who the we involves. Now, there's three big categories. There's a limited amount of subcategories, but you could reduce it down to three big categories of who that we includes. Uh, We could could include the chosen and the predestinated. Contextually, that's where we're at. Those who have been chosen and predestined as adopted as sons, uh, we have redemption. So we could say that. And part of the argument that would say that contextually is a theological argument that God's, that Christ's blood is precious. And not one ounce of Christ's precious blood would be wasted on someone who is not chosen, who is not predestinated, who is not going to be saved. It, it would be Ridiculous to think that Christ would waste his blood, that the Father would waste Christ's blood on somebody who's not going to be saved. So some would say that the we would be the chosen ones, those who have been predestinated. And that would fall within evangelicalism. It falls into a certain category of evangelicalism, but there would be uh, some who would hold to that. The others would understand the we as in the whole world. Specifically, as in the whole world being saved. So this isn't the whole world, uh, it's the whole world being saved. You could call it universalism. Where um, all of humanity is saved, and again, it goes with the the basis of of Christ's blood. Now, we see from verse 7 that the payment is Christ's blood. So, um, would God waste an ounce of Christ's blood uh, on, on people that weren't going to get saved, and the answer they would say is absolutely not. Therefore, who is saved? The whole world is saved. They would say. So there are people who know that they're saved. Uh, majority of us who are here, and then there's people all around the world that will get to heaven and go, "Oh my word! What am I doing here? I, I didn't know I was saved." Oh yeah, you were saved. You were you were bought. Oh wow, this is just fantastic. I didn't know. And that's what universalism would, would preach. Now there, there's so many issues with universalism. There's so many problems with it theologically that it really doesn't need to even be addressed. But Christ talks about in, in chapter, John chapter 3, talks about those who accept and those who reject, those who are in darkness, uh, will stay in darkness and they're condemned already. That condemnation that they have is on them uh, to spend all eternity. Uh, Revelation, we see those who are not found in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire, and we see the big and the small being thrown into the lake of fire. There's so many texts that would argue against universalism. Uh, and so then there's a third category. The third category, would be that this redemption, the ones who were bought, those who were bought would include the whole world, as in the blood paid paid the price for the whole world. Not that everyone is saved, but what was purchased was enough to ransom the whole world. Now, not everybody ends up becoming saved. The we there would then apply to all believers in church, but also to everybody in the whole world. And, and you say, well, how is that possible? How would Christ die for people who aren't saved? Well, there, there is a text found in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we'll look at verse 1. Paul is addressing uh, these believers... And, and he's telling them about these false prophets. And he says, uh, verse uh, chapter two, uh, 2, Peter chapter 2, verse 1 but false prophets also arose among the people, just as uh, there will be uh, false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift, uh, swift destruction upon themselves. Peter is arguing that there's a group of people who deny Christ, even though Christ had purchased them. He bought them. So it's possible to have a purchasing, a death that ransomed the whole world, but not everyone gets saved. That's the point that John makes in uh, 1 John 2.2. Who was the propitiation to God? For whom? For the whole world. To what extent? does this pay it it pays for the sins of the whole world because as we go back to Ephesians it's according to as it says in verse 7 according to the riches of his grace and we have to ask ourselves how, how much riches of his grace does he have is it limited to just a small group or is it enough to cover all the sins of the whole world And the answer is, His grace is sufficient for the whole world. Now, we look at this, and it still brings us the problem of, well, what do you do about Christ's blood being spilled for individuals who never accept? That seems to be wasting Christ's blood on individuals that would reject. Well, if you understand Christ's death as being ultimately as salvific in its purpose, then yes, it, it would be a waste. Because if Christ's death, ultimate purpose was salvific and not everyone that he dies for gets saved, then it would be a waste. But what if it's not ultimately salvific? What if Christ's death is ultimately doxological to bring glory to God? Ah, then we have a different scenario and that's the point that he makes verse 6 uh, to the praise of the glory of his grace uh, then we see again over in verse um, 12 to the end that we were the first to hope in christ would be to the praise of his glory verse 14 who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of god's own position, uh, po- possession, possession to the praise of his glory. This praise that Paul is making about salvation is ultimately doxological. It's ultimately to the praise of God. Because the original thing was, when uh, Adam and Eve was there, was, he's not a good God. That that was the accusation. He's not a good God. He's withheld something from you. And she saw that the fruit could, could give her wisdom could give her insight that she didn't have. And she decided to disobey God rather than to obey. So what's what's the payment? Well, the payment, as it says, is through his blood. It's redemption through the blood of of Christ. Now, it it represents his death. So we had our, our, our first question, who was redeemed? Now we ask the question, what was the payment for this redemption? And the payment, as it says in the verse, is through his blood. That, that's how it, uh, it... Now, this causes some problems for some individuals as they think about this. They think, well, if, if we're saved through the blood of Christ, then that makes God, God the Father, a, a divine child abuser. Here, here he is abusing his child even to the point of death. And, and therefore, he is a divine child abuser. And that would maybe be, make sense if Christ was somehow dependent upon the Father, kind of standing there, uh, dependent on whatever he dictates. But as we see in this, that Paul is making the argument, he's saying that Christ is involved in the decision. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, uh, through 11, you see that Christ decided to become obedient even to the point of death. He he took on humanity and became obedient. This isn't God acting in isolation of of the Son, but rather both acting together in this purpose of redeeming people for the glory of God. So he's not a divine child abuser. It also brings another question. How in the world does Christ's blood cleanse a person from sin? How does Christ's blood cleanse a person from sin? I mean, here we got these these flowers, and um, Dave loves drinking coffee, and he's up here reading the scripture, and as he's coming down, he pours some coffee on the flowers. And Tracy says, don't worry about it. I got a bucket of blood. She, and the coffee stain is gone, right? No. That's not how that happens at all. Dave likes to garden outside and comes in and his clothes are filthy. And Jane says, don't worry about it. I got this bucket of blood over here. Just, just leave the clothes on. Splashes them with blood and all of a sudden it's just like clean, like starch, right? He said, no, it's it becomes filthy. It becomes disgusting. How in the world does does Christ's blood cleanse us from our sins? How is it that it's going to cleanse a person from their sins? That just doesn't make any sense. We have to go back to the garden. God told Adam that the day that he would eat the fruit, with the knowledge of good and evil, he would die. And the day that he ate, he did die. Not physically, but he was separate from God. He was separated from God. Now, if he would die in that separate state, he would be separate from God for all eternity in punishment. What Christ did in dying and shedding his blood was that he took the offense, the sin, and he took it upon himself. In exchange, he gave us his righteousness, his holiness, and he gave it to us. So that now when God sees the person, he does not see the sinfulness, but he sees Christ's righteousness. That's what was accomplished in his death. He received our sinfulness. You can see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, verse 19, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That he, he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's what he did. And it's in that way that his blood cleanses us from our sin because an uh, an exchange happened. That now we have Christ's righteousness, and it took his death where he took God's wrath. Now we get to our third point. As we're looking at this, we said uh, who who was bought, uh, what was was, um, uh, used to make the payment, and then uh, who was paid. Now, who was paid? This has caused a bunch of debate over the years. And there's about uh, seven different theories about who ends up getting paid in this ransom, in this redemption. Who is being paid? If I go to Walmart and I pick up a bunch of stuff and put it in the buggy, uh, who who do I go and pay? The cashier, right? Because they have a legal right to demand this payment. When Christ pays with his blood, who is he paying? Who Who is he paying? That's the question we have to ask. Well, the oldest thought was that uh, Christ paid Satan. That when Jesus rescued sinners, he had to make a payment to Satan. This theory has so many problems. Um, It's kind of one of those situations that you just kind of say, bless your heart, and you just shake your head, and and you hope that nobody repeats that again in, in, in our day and age. But this idea that um, Christ paid Satan, it falls apart when you start to think that Satan is not the offended one. Restitution and pardon of sin, as it says in verse 7, does not need to to be made to Satan. We, We haven't offended his holiness. We haven't offended his righteousness. We haven't gone against him. He's not the one who gets the payment. It doesn't make any sense. Now, he hasn't been the one offended. The other idea is that he, um, there's the moral example, that Christ was, uh, Christ did not pay to anybody. Rather, he was being a good example to us. And as a good example to us, we're supposed to kind of follow this sacrificial living. As, as we have opportunity, and that's the key word, opportunity. And how do you define Opportunity. Well, you can pass over a bunch of opportunities and just say, I didn't have the opportunity yet. But if you say opportunity, then as you have opportunity, you live this sacrificial life. Well, that sounds really great. But this is giving a pardon for sins, for transgression, according to the riches of his grace. This isn't a moral example towards how we're supposed to live. If we sin against each other, it's not like, uh, well, I'm going to sacrifice myself, and now we're going to be right with each other. That, that just doesn't happen. If you offend somebody and the person decides to sacrifice themselves, they might be very happy with you. Hope I never see you again, you know, type of thing. But, but it doesn't do anything to the person's guilt. And here we have something that is, doing, is, is dealing with the person's guilt, with their trans, transgressions. The best one is God. The redemption freed the people from God's condemnation. God is the offended party. We are the offenders. And when he redeemed us, when Christ redeemed us, he went into, you could say, the slave market of sin and purchased us out of the wrath of God that we deserved. We deserve the condemnation. We're the ones that are guilty. And he has appeased God's wrath. Second John, I mean First John 2:2. This redemption happens now, as it says uh, in verse seven, "We have received redemption through His blood. It, it expresses the means. It defines uh, precisely how this redemption was accomplished. It is accomplished through Christ's death. As we think about this, now we have to ask ourselves, what did it accomplish? And what it accomplished is uh, forgiveness of our trespasses. It provides forgiveness for our trespasses. That's a pardon uh, to being free from an obligation. You're you're forgiven. And it says from transgressions. That's a violation of a moral standard. It's where one has done something wrong, not by accident, but by willful decision. They have transgressed. They knew that there was the line and they weren't supposed to cross it, and they leaped over way over here. That's a transgression. And it says that this blood redeems us from those, it pardons us, it forgives us from these transgressions. Now, if you were interested in doing kind of a a quick word study, you could go to Romans chapter uh, 6 and 1 through 11. You'll see that sin is made mentioned there, and it's always in the singular. Uh, It's mentioned a bunch of times in the singular, and we are saved from our sin nature. But here in Ephesians 1, 7, we are forgiven for our transgressions. It's a plural. It's the many times that we transgress and go against God. It's a plurality of violations against His moral standard. Now, how how are we forgiven? It says there, according to the riches of His grace according to the rich of his his grace. Now, as we see this, uh, I think we can make a couple of applications that are already on the screen. The first is that we are property of Christ. We're property of Christ. Uh, We know how this works when you go and buy something. Can you imagine going and buying a car and then the car just driving off and saying, Bye, thanks a lot. Like, come back here. You belong to me. Uh Uh-uh. That would be absurd, wouldn't it, that a car would just take off? Like, I purchased you. You don't go unless I tell you to go. That's what's true here. Now, there's two two really big polls that's going on right now. And and that is, there's one poll that says to think and act like the collective group. There's a popular movement that says this. It's the collective group that is right. What is the collective group wanting? Well, they're the right ones. So as an individual, what you do is you reiterate what the collective group wants. They, they set the standard, and, and you just keep on saying what they're saying. There's another poll, and the other poll is, is says that we're autonomous individuals who, who think and act according to our own will. I even heard one person say that this is the Judeo-Christian way of acting, that we're autonomous individuals who think and act. But this is not what the Scriptures present. The Scriptures are presenting that we're purchased. We're not free agents to do whatever we want. We belong to someone. We don't get to just decide, what do I want to do today? We have to live a life that glorifies the one who purchased us that lives in accordance with how the one who purchased us would want us to live. We don't get to just think and do whatever we please. We have to ask ourselves, will this bring glory to the one who redeemed me, who bought me? It's a totally different way. We're we're property of Christ. This isn't just a New Testament idea. You see people in the Old Testament doing this. Joseph with Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, she kept on telling them to come and and he said, I, I can't do this against the Lord. Daniel, the, the, the prophet, the king's edict went out. You can't pray. And what does he do? He opens up the windows and continues to pray. He'd rather follow God than, than, and suffer the consequences. Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, 14 through uh, 28. You remember the scene? He, he's about to die, and he calls all of Israel to come. And, and he tells them that... Um, They they need to follow God, follow God with all their heart. And they said, will do it. And he says, no, you won't. You'll go after other gods. You'll go and and, and leave the God who redeemed you, who rescued you from Egypt. You'll go and worship other gods. He said, but as for me and my house, we're going to worship the Lord. Sure enough, the whole group of them eventually went and worshipped other gods. And the testimony we have is that Joshua kept on. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 and 9 through 9, we see that God tells Joshua to obey him. Don't go to the left, don't go to the right, keep on obeying God. We're not individuals who can just think. We have to obey God's word. Now, we're freed, and we're freed from sin. We're going to look at this as it gets developed more in chapter 2, but we're freed from the consequences of the transgression. We've been released. We 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 don't have to suffer the consequences of the transgression. There there was a church and the first church my dad planted in Venezuela, Bethesda Baptist Church. They were kind of at a little bit of a higher elevation than the road, and they were in a subdivision. And so there was a house right across the road, and, and they uh, they had a big big school bus, big old yellow school bus that they would do uh, different activities with and. The battery was dead, and, and they decided to jumpstart it by by pushing it, you know, pushing it and, and popping the clutch. The problem was is that the brakes were air brakes. So you got to have the motor running to have the compressor working so it, it fills the compressor with, with air, and so that when they press the gas uh, the, the brake pedal, it'll stop. But if you're going to jumpstart it, it's got no time to, to fill up the compressor. So they're out there pushing it, and uh, they get it to the edge of the driveway, and off it goes. And it starts going, and sure enough, he pop, pops the clutch. It starts up, and he goes to press the brake, and there's no brake. He rams into the fence of the neighbor, knocks it out, and almost hits his house. That neighbor was not happy. He did not release them from the consequences of their decision. He, he made them pay for a new, a new fence. But we're freed from sin, the transgressions that we've done, we've been released from the consequence of that. That, That's an exciting thing to think about. And we no longer need to sin. Now, the last part is, how has this happened? And it's kata. It's a Greek word, and it's according. It's not out of. It's not out of. It's not out of his grace, the riches of his grace. It's not out of. It's not like he has this uh, tremendous pile of riches of his grace, and he said, "I want to redeem. Uh, we'll, we'll use. I want to redeem us, whoever, how you, however you want to define the us." And he has this riches of his grace, and he, and he pulls out a bunch, and he comes over here and pays it. It's not out of. It's according. And the according means that it takes the whole wealth. What's his wealth? It's his beloved that paid with his blood. It, it, it costs. What value do you put to that? There is no value. He paid according to his riches of his grace by giving us Christ. Now, what do you do with that type of information? Your salvation is very, very costly. What do you do with costly things? Do you leave it out in the rain? Or do you take care of it? I was reading about the, uh, how to become a candidate for a heart transplant. Do you realize that the candidates, they can't drink or do any drugs? Do you realize that they have a whole group of people and they, they come up with a treatment plan for how they're supposed to act before and after the heart transplant? And, and they are analyzing the person to see if they're going to follow that plan before and after. Why? The hearts are precious. Here we have something that has, you can't even measure the cost. It's Christ himself. It's his blood. What, What do you do with that? Well, you can go in two different directions. One, you could say, you need to live differently. You need to do this. You need to do that. But that's not the context that we find this in. The context that we find that his He was according to the riches of His grace is in a praise to God. And our response to this immeasurable cost to God is praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. That is what our life should say. That is what our lips should be saying. Praise Him for this salvation that He has given us. We need to praise God because Christ redeemed us and freed us at an immeasurable cost. Maybe you're here today, and you can't praise Him because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Oh, you have a lot of Bible stories. You know a lot of information. And you've been able to stand at the right time and sit at the right time. But you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And you can't praise Him, praise Him, praise Him. I would encourage you in a minute, when we're going to have our invitation to come, I'd love to show you, through God's Word, how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. For other of us here, maybe we're saved. But our eyes are fixed on the war in Ukraine, on whatever the Supreme Court's doing, on whatever people are doing outside the Supreme Court, on gas prices, and you're in turmoil and anxiety, and really your eyes should be focusing on what God has done for you. Because it's very precious. And you should be saying thank you and praise him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this redemption. Thank you for how you have redeemed us. It was according to your riches of your grace. Father, I pray that if someone has never experienced that redemption, that today... Father today that they'll come forward and they'll put their faith in in Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Father, I pray for we who are saved. We haven't been praising you because we're we got our eyes at the wrong place and Father, I pray that we'll put our eyes on on your work that you have decided to redeem us through Jesus Christ. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. Would you please stand